Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thanks so much for making the time. I want to just jump right in and ask you, do you think that the COVID-19 virus came from a lab in Wuhan? I do, and have for quite some time. Barry, you'll recall that it was last spring when I first articulated uh, what we knew, what we didn't know. And it's the case, we don't know a heck of a lot more even than what we knew then. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party has gone into full cover-up mode. But if you stare at the evidence that is accumulated to date, it points in the single direction of this having been a laboratory leak from a place called the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a place where the Chinese were engaged in some complicated viral research and studies. Uh, And while I can't lay down the proof for you, I can certainly do uh, what we've done in terms of getting declassified information out to the American public, making every piece of evidence that the West has available to it available, and then we can all demand that the Chinese Communist Party, if we're wrong, if, we, if we've got this story incorrect, they're the ones with the data, they're the ones that could prove who patient zero was or where this began, they have a responsibility to the world to do so. The, the risk that something like this could happen again is greatly increased if we don't know how the Wuhan virus escaped China to come kill three million people around the world. What is it that convinces you that it came from the lab? Just multiple threads of circumstantial evidence. In January of this year, we released information that said that in the end of 2019, there were multiple people who were working at the laboratory who came down with something that, a a set of symptoms that looked identical to the Wuhan virus, to COVID-19. We know that this location, this this, this institute was at the epicenter, right? It all began in Wuhan. We know that this laboratory was in the right place. So you can imagine someone walking out with this virus and then going home to see their family. So the location of the start of the virus is very, very near where the Wuhan Institute of Virology was located. Third, we know that they were working on viruses, and I don't want to get too technical, but they were working on viruses of this type in this laboratory. Uh, and had been for quite some time. We know that this laboratory also was known not to operate at international standards, that there were security issues, there were handling issues that the laboratory wasn't doing. We would never have this kind of risk in a laboratory in the United States of America. Uh, there, There are eight or 10 threads of information that suggest that the most likely scenario scenario for this virus to have escaped to begin broad-based human-to-human transmission was from this laboratory. For the past more than a year, almost a year and a half, anyone that said that was accused of pushing disinformation and conspiracy theories, and people were kicked off of social media for saying so. So I'd like to ask you, why was there such a pushback against even the notion that this might have accidentally leaked out of a lab? Like, what is so damning about that idea? What's so dangerous about the idea? Uh, Barry, that's that's a great question. I actually haven't been asked that before. Uh, you're right. Not only were we, myself included, those of us who were talking about this as a possibility back in uh, the early parts of 2020, we were, we were accused not only of being a little bit unhinged, uh, but of being racist or xenophobe somehow, uh, denoting that somehow the Chinese were lesser than other human beings. Nothing could be further from the truth. This, In the end, the failure of this laboratory will end up harming the Chinese people more than just about any place else in the world. Uh, the, the reason for this, Barry, uh, is twofold. One, the Chinese Communist Party was pushing this narrative. The Chinese Communist Party used every available uh, information warfare strategy that they have in their toolkit to knock down the storyline. You remember, it was said, oh, this couldn't possibly have been anything but natural because it couldn't have been man-made. Well, th- those things have all proven to be untrue or unimportant. Uh, the, the Chinese narrative began to predominate in the international press and the international marketplace. And then you had uh, persons with a vested interest. There's a fellow named Peter Dezik. There were, there were scientists who had been involved in activity at this laboratory including some that had at least indirect funding from the United States of America, who had a vested interest ensuring that a story about a possible risk that came from this laboratory wasn't the original source of this virus spreading around the world. And then the last piece is you had this massive cover-up taking place where real data, real information was scarce and hard to come by. Certainly in the classified space, it was unclassified space, it was hard to come by. 
And so the Chinese narrative dominated folks uh, here in the United States who didn't, didn't want the world to believe that the Chinese Communist Party could possibly cover up a virus coming from their uh, own country. Uh, all of those blended together to make those of us who were, who were simply, and even today, I don't claim that I know the answer, even today, just trying to lay out the facts and data in a way with a reasonable hypothesis are still often accused of behaving in a way that's inconsistent with good company at a cocktail party. I want to add one uh, little theory that I have, and I'm wondering if it resonates with you in addition to everything you just said. I think that the X factor of Donald Trump had something to do with this becoming an untouchable idea. In other words, Trump, you know, applied his typically subtle rhetoric to the issue. He called the virus the China virus. He called it at rallies the Kung flu. And I think that that rhetorical poison also contributed to making the topic untouchable because, you know, for someone to say, yes, there may be a connection between this Chinese lab and the spread of this virus was to implicate yourself in that kind of dog-whistling rhetoric. Does that resonate with you? Boy, I don't know, Barry. I, I've seen in other places, I've seen it with, even related to the virus, with masks, right? Somehow that this uh, uh, anti-Trump hysteria, whatever, uh, drove narratives. I, I, always, I always dismiss that to some degree because uh, my my observation was there were much larger forces at play pushing the uh, lab market theory or the wet market theory rather. Uh, there were much larger forces at play. People with real vested interests, real with enormous national security implications for their country, who were work who were working the information marketplace. Do you think it would have been helpful though for him to avoid saying things like that? No, I've talked about the Wuhan virus. I think it's enormously helpful to identify the source for a virus in this way. It, it, the Chinese Communist Party was at, at best case, Barry, in the absolute most generous case, they were grossly cr or criminally or recklessly negligent with respect to how they handled this virus that came from their country. No, no other country in the world would have responded in a way that would have denied the world knowledge of who patient zero was, where this started from, the nature of the virus. No other country would have destroyed the original virus. Now, their behavior was tragically dangerous, and the worst news of all of that is it still impacts global safety today. And for those who say that there's a connection between, you know, the rhetoric of Kung Flu and the attacks on Asian Americans spiking, you know, in cities like San Francisco and New York, you say? Well, I've heard this, and I've, I've been accused of, of causing some of this as well. I think if you rolled the tape back on this interview and if you rolled the tape back on the probably hundreds, certainly dozens of interviews I've done with respect to the broader set of issues, I very much focus on the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. it, this, is, this is the central challenge of our times. There are 1.2 uh, billion Chinese citizens who aren't members of the Chinese Communist Party. And I try to distinguish between the two very clearly because this isn't about ethnicity. This isn't about race. This is about a regime, an authoritarian communist regime that unleashed a virus in a way that has now caused so much destruction and loss of life. I, I want to talk about the collapse in authority that we're seeing in this country. And I think you know, this entire year, we were, we were told to, to trust the experts, to believe the science. There's signs all over my neighborhood saying that on people's front lawns. But, Sign me up. But what, <laughs> right, but what happens, Mr. Secretary, when those experts knowingly lie to the public? You know, the latest polls show that half of Americans have a great deal of trust in the CDC. And I guess I want to ask you, do you trust the CDC? Do you trust the experts? And, and have you gotten vaccinated? Uh, so I, the, the answer to the last one is easy. I, I have been vaccinated. Uh, I'm happy about that. I would encourage everyone to make their own decision. But I would tell you the vaccines that have been produced in the West with some of the most amazing technology in the world are safe by any ordinary scientific measure of safety. And I think we've all seen they're pretty efficacious as well. So I, I have been vaccinated. Your, your point about trust in institutions matters an awful lot. It, it, so much bigger than the CDC. I remember, Barry, when I was a member of Congress and I'd see the data that says 
Mike, we like you, but we trust 13% of all members of Congress. Well, uh, I knew that in some district outside of South Central Kansas, I was the 13, not the, not the one. Uh, it is absolutely imperative that leaders do everything they can to tell the truth. We're all allowed to have viewpoints. We're all allowed to perform, make judgments. But data and analytics, we have to do everything we can to, to present them straight up to the American people. I, I saw that so plainly, Barry, when I was a CIA director. Our job was to do everything we could to cut any political bias out of that. We didn't always succeed. Human beings are fraught with making mistakes, but we tried to develop systems that pulled bias out and deliver just, just the core factual set and, and a set of analytics that was transparent. We have to have faith in our institutions. We have to have faith in our CDC, in our FBI, in our court system, in election integrity, all of the things that you, you hinted at in your question. It is so vital to the republic that we have trust in those systems, and all, much of that has come under attack these past years. Well, I, Some of it justifiably so. I, I want to ask you about the person who has sort of gone from being the the hero of this virus to something different at this stage in the game, which is, which is Dr. Fauci. I, I realize there's a lot of bogus crap out there on the internet that's not worth our time on conspiracy theories and the like, but... I feel like he's done a lot to hurt the trust of the American people in the past year, specifically with the original noble lie that masks would not help stop the spread of COVID. People should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it? Because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. That he eventually walked back and eventually said, not only do, are we required to wear masks, we should maybe even wear two of them as a way to stop the spread. So... I want to ask you specifically about this exchange that he had with Senator Rand Paul. Dr. Fauci, we don't know whether the pandemic started in a lab in Wuhan or evolved naturally, but we should want to know. Three million people have died from this pandemic, and that should cause us to explore all possibilities. Rand Paul was asking Fauci about whether or not the National Institute of Health was funding research at the Wuhan lab. Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entire, entirely and completely incorrect that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute Do they fund of Dr. Barrick? We do not fund... Do you fund gain, Dr. Barrett's gain-of-function research? D Dr. Barrett does not doing gain-of-function research, and if it is, it's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina, not You don't think inserting a bad virus... And then they started talking, to be honest with you, was a little bit over my head about gain-of-function research, which seemed to me jargon... It was jargon that I didn't understand. It is not gain-of-function, despite the fact that people tweet that. So do you still support it? sending money to the Wuhan Virology Institute? We do not send money now to the to Wuhan uh, Virology Institute. Do you support Institute. sending money? We did under your tutelage. We so I want to ask you, what is the difference between research and gain-of-function research? Is Rand Paul right when he says that Fauci was lying? Help us interpret what was going on in that exchange and what's at stake. So, Barry, I'm going to do my best as a, uh, a totally untrained professional to talk about gain-of-function research. I have spent a lot of time reading about it. Uh, one way to think about it, it is, it's like when you're grafting plants to try and get just the right color, or you're trying to supercharge, in this case, a virus so that you can evaluate that virus in a way that uh, speeds up the timeline for, uh, for genetic transitions. Um, some of that some scientists are going to say is wrong, but suffice it to say, gain-of-function research has a, has, an, has a purpose that is a good one. It allows you to get to answers about how a virus may interact in the world more quickly by continuing to supercharge it, if you will, to, to juice it a little bit. It's research that's been done in American laboratories, although it is always very controversial. The United States has periodically permitted it to happen and other times not permitted it to happen in certain instances. Um, always when it was done, it was done under highly technically secured uh, conditions, well-researched, well-known, thoroughly prepared. 
The Chinese were doing this research in laboratories that had no business engaging in it. And maybe that's the simplest pl place to launch into the discussion between Dr. Fauci and Senator Rand. I'll, I'll tell you only what is unclassified and that I know. I know that the Chinese at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were engaged in gain-of-function research. They have acknowledged this themselves. I also know that there was U.S. taxpayer money that was provided by a component of the American governmental health care system, something called the National, the NIAAD, that was provided to various uh, nonprofits, grantees, if you will, that then went to the various biolaboratories inside of China. That much, I think, is uncontested even by Dr. Fauci. Um, I'll, I'll leave to another day the debate between the two as to the direct link between that U.S. taxpayer money and gain-of-function research. But Barry, you know this, that money is fungible. We had reasonably good visibility into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There were reports from the State Department uh, relatively early on that suggested that this laboratory was not operating in a way that a, a high-level bio laboratory ought to operate, that it was not as secure as it needed to be. Uh, there are many more questions than, than there are answers, at least answers that are available in the unclassified setting today. And I thought Dr. Fauci's testimony was incredibly disappointing because he could have done more than just answer Senator Paul's question. He could have uh, shared with the American public what he knew, how he knew it, precisely what he did and precisely where that American taxpayer money went in the, China bio, in the Chinese biological program. Wait, so I want to make sure I understood you. Dr. Fauci told Rand Paul that the lab was not involved in gain-of-function research, and you are telling me that the lab was involved in gain-of-function research. Yes, I, I think Dr. Fauci only said that it, U.S. taxpayer dollars did not go to that gain-of-function research. No, the, so the laboratory— so it's, so it's kind of a semantic game. I, I believe he was cutting the line pretty pretty thinly there. Yes, ma'am. Would you say he was lying? I'll leave to your listeners to judge that. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I, if, if I were answering that question, I wouldn't have been comfortable with such a narrow response in a way to answer really what the, the meat of the question from Senator Paul was. Hey, did we provide money to this laboratory? And if so, what use did it go for? I think it was a pretty narrow, a pretty narrow thin answer. Uh, you know, I always, Barry, I always taught my son that if you give half an answer, it's just as bad as if you lie. I'll leave it there. How do you think history is going to look back on Dr. Fauci? How do you think history is going to look back on how the Trump administration more broadly handled this crisis? Oh, I'll, I think the time will only tell. I think there are always things in hindsight that you wish you'd done slightly differently. Uh, you know, the, the fact that we were, we were confronting this early on, we made one really, really good decision really early that we were literally lambasted for, which was to close down Chinese travel to the United States from non-American citizens. Uh, it was a brilliant decision, a bold decision by President Trump. Uh, you know, it, it, is, it is hard to move away from what the medical professionals tell you early on in an epidemic like this. But when one adds up all the costs over time associated with kids missing school and businesses being closed and the damage that comes to a society from imposing, call them lockdowns, call them closeouts, call them limited contact activities. I, I think we will, we will all conclude that we, we could have handled this virus in a way that didn't impose those enormous costs and still had health outcomes that weren't terribly different than the ones we saw this past year and a couple months now. I want to talk about China more broadly. You have said that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is the biggest existential threat to the U.S. and maybe the world. Tell me why. Why is that threat more dangerous than that of Iran, that of Russia, that of North Korea? Barry, as a, someone who was a West Point graduate, we were always taught one needs to first look at capability and then intent. And if I may back up just one moment, I always caveat this by saying the greatest threat to the United States isn't external, it's internal. I'm sure we'll talk some about this. Uh, mm -hmm. If we lose our foundational understandings of America, that poses a much greater threat to my kids and grandkids. Uh, our founders knew that. They said the republic could only be governed by a virtuous people. We have to make sure we have that right. As for external threats, the Chinese Communist Party has the clear intent of building out a world that looks more like their country than like ours. 
or like the West. Basic understandings of human rights, basic understandings about the rule of law, basic understandings about how nations should engage with each other are something that the Chinese Communist Party looks at very differently than we do in the West. And I use the West broadly, those of us who believe in these innate characteristics of human beings having dignity because they're created in the image of God. This is, this is the idea. West, there can be, the West can exist all around the world. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is intent on creating a hegemonic power that is authoritarian in nature and Marxist-Leninist by ideology. And this isn't just inside of their own country, inside of their own nation state, inside of their uh, surveillance state, where they are actively engaged in genocide today. But this is a broader effort. It's not only to secure resources for themselves, but it is to build out an empire. And we, we've seen this before with the Soviet Union. We know what this means for humanity. We know what this means for the United States of America. They have that intent. And then 1.4 billion people and a very capable military, diplomatic, economic power. So they also have real capability. This is why I suggest that the Chinese Communist Party truly presents the only nation that can, over time, fundamentally alter our way of life here in the United States. Give us a sense of how the Chinese Communist Party influences us and our lives. So I think for a lot of people, it's like China, kind of scary, doing terrible things, maybe carrying out a genocide, but it's something that happens on the other side of the world. How do they exert their influence here in, on American soil? Maybe let's start with higher education. Sure. So let's start there. Uh, we're, we're, doing, we're causing our own enough problems in our own higher institutions, higher education institution. Um, but let me tell you what the Chinese are doing. And let me tell you, these are symbiotic as well. They are working with something called the United Front. This is China's external influence operations. How does it manifest itself? If you're on a college campus today and there's something called a Confucius Institute, it seems noble come here, learn Mandarin, learn about Chinese culture, and kumbaya, life will be better for everyone. And maybe you'll even get a good job uh, working in a big bank in New York, working on Chinese accounts. Uh, this is a Chinese influence operation designed to communicate the greatness and nobleness of the, of the Chinese Communist Party and what good works they do around the world. Uh, they also are working on our college campuses, on our research institutions. What are they doing there? They're providing real money to you know, places like, uh, think of my hometown, of Wichita State University, providing research money, grants, so that these professors can do all kinds of different research, mostly in engineering, science, math, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence. They'll put a couple of Chinese scholars alongside them, and then they'll work together to find a problem, and they will steal intellectual property like you can't imagine. And we've just looked the other way for so long. Why? Why are we looking the other way? Oh, uh, big money is at stake. Uh, it is hard to confront the fact that when you do this, there'll be real costs. That university, uh, some big university may have as much as 5 or 10 or 15% of their students who are coming from China. There's 360,000 students studying at those universities. Today, those students pay full freight. They're carrying a significant financial burden for those educational institutions. So I remember when we started to look closely at the level of Chinese spying on campuses, I immediately got letters from every major institutional, uh, major college institution in America, from their presidents and from their trade associations saying, hey, be very careful. These students are here. They're noble. They're wonderful. They just want to learn about the American way of life. And oh, by the way, they make up 40% of our operating budget. Uh, so these are these are some of the reasons. In other fields, it's different, but there's an awful lot at stake. And unlike the Soviet Union, we have deep economic connections to China, big trading relationships. And so there are enormous vested interests that don't want to make the hard questions come to, the, the difficult answers to complicated questions come to fruition. I've been privy to a lot of conversations with, you know, hedge fund managers, business people who say, yeah, China's terrible on human rights. China steals our intellectual property, but China's also unstoppable. And it's a huge market. And we have no choice other than to do business with them. And so in the end, they basically say, let's cover our eyes, let's plug our ears and keep the money rolling. What do you want to say to those people? 
Yeah, I, I've heard that countless times too. It's what I was just referring to about these vested economic interests. Uh, it's like cocaine. It always feels really good. I'm told. I don't know the answer to this, but I'm told. <laughs> I, I'm told it feels really good until it doesn't and that the crash always comes. And the analogy is certainly imperfect and it's a little clever and cute. But suffice it to say, the Chinese Communist Party is operating inside our financial institutions, inside our agricultural institutions, inside each of these in a way that is deeply intentional. Right? They are sucking this intellectual property out for a purpose. They're then drinking it back, working on it in their universities. They have very capable innovators there, too. They've grown out their own abilities on the backs of the American worker. Uh, what, I would, what I would tell each of those businesses is that they are American businesses with the privileges that are afforded to them because they do get the, the, the most wonderful privilege in the world of living in the United States of America. And they have an obligation to listen to national security leaders when we present them with facts that suggest that their activities are undermining the security for themselves and their families and their children. I, I found that that message was received. What they needed was uh, a set of leaders who were prepared to have their back when they confronted China as well. We did that at least for the last two or three years of our time in office. I hope this administration will continue that as well. So higher education, agriculture, you mentioned. What about Chinese Communist Party influence in places like Hollywood or the NBA? <laughs> uh, we could go on for a, a long time. You'll recall that uh, now a couple years back, I, I issued the order to close the Chinese consulate that was operating out of Houston. It was a difficult decision. It was a complete, sophisticated den of spies operating under cover of diplomacy. Myself and the FBI director both concluded we had only one option. To your point, um, they were operating at major research institutions in Texas. They were stealing intellectual property from America's innovative energy companies. Uh, we saw this out of the consulate in Los Angeles as well. Um, we saw the influence that they had in the media. You've seen some of our nation's biggest corporate technology companies and producers of media uh, kowtow because, you know, selling a movie and distributing in China is a pretty lucrative proposition. And so if the Chinese say, please thank the security forces in uh, Xinjiang for the work they did that permitted you to film there, this would be Disney. Making Mulan, yeah, right? They were making Mulan. They, they will do that. And tell us, tell us what's going on in that province. Well, you know, Barry, I know we're going to turn to the Middle East, but we all, we all said never again. And we said we'll never forget what happened in the 1930s in Europe. And if you were staring at that problem set from the point of view of a Uyghur who is in an internment camp or a Uyghur woman who has been forced to suffer a forced abortion... Uh, it would feel very much like something we promised we would never forget. And we have something on the order of a million plus, largely Turkish Muslim, although our other faiths as well, uh, that live in Western China that are being held in something akin to concentration camps. They don't get home, go, get home to go see their families. They can't travel freely. They have no ability to communicate externally from these camps. They are suffering re-education programs or worse. At the very end of my time in service as Secretary of State, I declared that this was genocide. That has a very specific definition. It has a very fact-based analysis to come to that legal conclusion, and it was a layup, sadly. It wasn't a close call whether genocide has taken place. That's now been uh, seconded by this administration, by Secretary Blinken. The, the world must know that this What's taking place there rivals what we saw take place before us in the 1930s in Europe. And I, when, I, when I think about this, uh, I, I think that in, in just a handful of months, the world is going to go to that place and hold an Olympics, a genocide Olympics, where athletes are going to be within hundreds of miles of the worst horrors being visited upon human beings by the Chinese Communist Party. It is... It is unexplainable to me how we could permit this to happen. You know, it's corporate America, it's Hollywood, it's sports, it's higher education, 
And it's also giant organizations that we're meant to trust, like the United Nations and the World Health Organization. And last year, there, there was this amazing video that went viral where a senior official for the WHO, the World Health Organization, is asked by a reporter, would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? About whether or not they would consider including Taiwan as a member. And the official for the WHO sits there in silence, staring at this reporter, and pretends that he didn't hear her. We, would it, would it, I'm sorry, I can't hear. You. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah. Let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. And when she goes on to repeat the question, he says, "No, no, no, no. Let's move on to the next question." And when she refuses, he literally hangs up because, on her. Because I'm I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. She calls him back, she asks him again, and he says, we've already talked about China. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. And it is something, Mr. Secretary, that is straight out of 1984. Like, it's so galling. You cannot believe that it's real. But I think you would say that this is actually happening in small ways that aren't captured on camera and that it's happening every day in millions of ways that we don't see. Yeah, Barry, that's, that's absolutely true. This was just a, um, an, un, an, an unmasking, if you will, uh, of the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party all across the world. And these institutions, to your point, the World Health Organization, right? it, it became a political tool of the Chinese Communist Party, and they asked us to still hand over several hundred million dollars of American taxpayer money it's just unexplainable to me, right? They they didn't do their job. Uh, and, and your point about 1984, the disinformation apparatus controlled and owned by the Chinese Communist Party is of enormous power and strength. You, 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 you wouldn't believe how often you see a narrative that comes out of something called the Global Times or the CGTN, another big Chinese network, uh, and it becomes standard language inside of AP or Western reporting. It's accepted as fact when, in fact, it, it was originated by the Chinese Communist Party there. What they, what they did there to Taiwan is the perfect example. They have, they have infiltrated these institutions. The, uh, you wouldn't know some of these. The UN Food Program, the, uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization, the World Trade Organization. And they have leveraged these institutions with with, frankly, uh, the West and America, too, at, asleep at the wheel for an awfully long time. And they now have built up a powerful, robust engine for disinformation around the world. How should average Americans, people like me and my wife, how can we think about the way that we are tacitly, maybe even unwittingly, supporting China? Like, the last thing in the world that I would want to do is participate even tacitly in a genocide happening right now. So what should we do? Should we boycott TikTok? Should we organize a campaign against the Olympics in Beijing? Like what should people, Americans that are concerned about the picture you're laying out here, what, what's, what's the action plan? So I always start in anything like this by becoming knowledgeable. Don't take Mike Pompeo's word for it. <laughs> Go, go read. Uh, I think you'll find that what I've said today is entirely supported by what you'll see. Because each one of us to do this has to have confidence that they've got the data set right. We started with this conversation about the truth. We have to begin there. When you see that these things are true, then you can make a set of decisions, a set of decisions about who you'll vote for for city council. And I, I'm, I'm not joking about that. The Chinese Communist Party is attending city council meetings all across America. Wait, what? Yeah, there. Look, this is the the breadth of this. I I released. I, I got declassified. It's been almost exactly a year ago. I think it was February of last year. A report where the Chinese Communist Party had graded every governor, and they had said, and Governor Smith is a friendly. Governor Jones is unfriendly, and Governor uh, Peters, uh, we're working on. They're actively working against county commissioners. They sent letters to the Wisconsin legislature. I went to Wisconsin and spoke about this. No, this, this effort inside our own country is very real. So the first thing every American can do is grab the facts and make sure that everyone around them, from the people leading their PTA meetings 
to the people running their city council? I mean, in small towns in America, to, 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 to go make sure they understand this and then to, to push back against it. You, you mentioned a, a boycott of the Olympics. In the end, these are decisions that are made by nation states. It's going to take real leadership, but ordinary Americans have to make sure they know what's real and what's fake and that they are prepared to accept costs. So I'll give you another example. Except I remember costs we, meaning pay more for cheap things. Sure. You could, you could absolutely imagine that that stuffed animal will be $6 instead of 5 I think the reality is uh, that cheap Chinese labor is a thing of the past and that if we move these supply chains, we'll find a pretty efficient marketplace and prices really won't rise all that much. Uh, but things like that are, are certainly good individual decisions that one could imagine making. But, but think, too, uh, about when President Trump po imposed tariffs. What were we trying to do? We were trying to simply say, look, there are, there are things that are harmless. If we buy plastic things from the Chinese and sell them plastic things, there, this is just commerce. There's no national security implications to this if they weren't made with slave labor or forced labor. Uh, but President Trump understood it wasn't fair. An American business that wanted to go and ex grow and expand in China couldn't, and a Chinese company that wanted to invest here could we've got to make sure that this is a fair and level and otherwise we'll have tens of millions of more jobs go from places like Kansas or Ohio to China. I mean, it's just crazy to think that somehow China should have trade advantages against the United States. They're now, they're now 1.4 billion people with a huge middle-class economy. Uh, these are the kind of things that the American people can start to ask questions at every level and observe for themselves. And when they see it, uh, every every good 12-step program starts with, I have a problem. Mm. And so the Trump administration at least got us to that, to go, and I did a lot of this, travel the world to make sure that people all across the world understand that the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping is a real problem and that the world is going to have to find solutions to confront it. There was a a sense when I worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, whose motto is free people, free markets, that liberalizing China's economy would necessarily lead to the liberalization of its political system. That turned out to be pretty much 100% wrong. Would you agree with that? I would. It, it was, Barry, the only thing I'd add, it, it, it was perhaps a reasonable hypothesis in the 70s and 80s. Based on, like, the Soviet Union right. and what happened there? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. it, it just turns out that in this case, the hypothesis, what, you, what do you do with hypotheses as a scientific matter? You test them. We've now had 40 years to test this hypothesis. This is, uh, you can cross this one off. There are a lot of people on the right who are saying essentially, in nicer language than this, that we sort of deserve the fact that China's wiping the floor with us that they're working while America's getting kind of fat and squishy and complacent. They're investing, they're building, they're pushing for technological advancements while we're kind of being decadent and don't even believe that we should have any moral authority at all. How do you think of that kind of apologetics for China that I see increasingly on, the, on what's been called the new right? Yeah, I've actually seen it. I've seen it on both the left and the right. Uh, the, the central thesis being that, no, uh, the Chinese have it right. America is in decline. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. the, I, I assure you that each time some American leader talks about American decline, the Chinese pounce on it. They grab it. They say, yep, we told you so. And they tell the world, be our friend, be our partner. This thing, this, this set of ideals that come from 1776, not 1619, is just wrong. And these folks are about to fall away. They won't be a power 20, 40, 80 years from now. I don't, I don't buy it for a second. Hmm. I just, I, I, don't, I don't accept that particular theory of the case. Uh, look, we've, we've got our own challenges here at home, things we've got to make sure that we get right. The, the, the veneer is uh, always thin, right? Our founders even knew. Reagan talked about us being one generation away uh, from losing the republic. Those, those are all true statements. That would have been from 40 years ago when he made that statement. I think that American people across a broad political spectrum understand the risk and will respond to the risk in a way that uh, ensures that our republic will stand and that we are not a nation in decline. Okay, I really want to get to the question about whether or not America's in decline in a minute. Before we go there, last question on China. Do you think that the Biden administration shares your basic view of the threat from the Chinese Communist Party? 
Barry, I think that their leaders do understand that, and that's good, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You have to be prepared to act on it. <laughs> There's the old joke about boxers, right? Everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face. The Chinese Communist Party will hit the Biden administration in the face. You could argue that they began that in Anchorage with the meeting that Secretary Blinken and, and National Security Advisor Sullivan had. Uh, it was probably a jab, not a hook. But make no mistake about it, the Chinese Communist Party will test this administration. They will see if they are prepared to act on the convictions that I believe they actually have. I think they see the facts set the same way that the Trump administration did. But if you, if you talk without action, you create enormous risk. And I, I've not yet seen this administration, and I will grant them it's just 100-plus days in. I've not yet seen the actions that they're prepared to take to actually deliver on what they surely know is this giant threat to the United States. So let's go from China to the Middle East, where China's making some serious investments. In March... China and Iran finalized this 25-year comprehensive strategic partnership. What does that mean? Why is it important? And why is China interested in Iran? Well, it's interesting that you connect the Middle East. It's, it's seldom done with China. They are deeply linked. The Chinese Communist Party depends on uh, transit through the Suez Canal and through the uh, Strait of Hormuz for on any given day, somewhere between 45 and 65% of its energy needs. It is absolutely vital to them. Footnote, it's much less vital to the United States, at least while we're still able to drill on federal lands and produce energy in the United States. And we don't go off into the zany Green New Deal world where we once again depend on others for our energy. Uh, end footnote, the Chinese Communist Party knows that they need access to this energy, and so they're doing everything they can to make sure that they have pipelines that extend. I wish I had a map that I could show you from uh, Kashgar in western China through a place called Gwadar in Pakistan. It sits on the uh, access point around Oman. Uh, they, they know they're going to need this energy, and they are working to build out alliances, regional alliances, that will cut off the West from the much-needed energy they need in time of conflict. Uh, I think it's also the case. It's not just about energy for them. Uh, we, they know the history of the Middle East. They know it as a fulcrum of history. And so they want to make sure that they are there and have sufficient political influence that it is not uh, an extension of what the United States and Israel who are building out. The, the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords were duly noted by the leadership in the Chinese Communist Party. They understood that Gulf states working alongside the United States and Israel in concert on economic matters, on diplomatic matters, on military matters is something that reduces China's capacity to gain the hegemonic influence that I began this conversation with, which is their full intent. So China's sort of betting on the strong horse of Iran and the U.S., let's say, is betting on the strong horse of Israel and now an Israel allied with Gulf Sunni states. Yeah, I think that's right. Although the Chinese are active in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and elsewhere, they're, they're not making a singular bet. They are building out a comprehensive strategy in the Middle East so they can have the foothold they believe they'll need when uh, they need energy. <laughs> I, I, I laugh there only because I think about the Paris Climate Accords that the administration re-entered. If anyone listening to this podcast believes that the Chinese Communist Party has any intention of slowing down its... Uh, monthly turning on of a new coal-fired power plant, I must say you should go look at the data set again. <laughs> These folks are no more going to destroy their economy for the sake of carbon reduction than a man in the moon. Why do Democrats want to align with Iran? Help, help steel man that case for me. Why, what do, why do they want to revive the Iran deal, for example? You, you know, Barry, I've, uh, you've asked me a whole bunch of questions so far. I've done my best to explain the other side's rationale. I got no, nothing for you. I, I, I literally, I, it is often the case that I can understand a counterargument and I can just, we, we, we weigh things differently, our values uh, and in a different place. On this one, I, I can't articulate a, a rational basis for re-entering the JCPOA. I mean, I've heard their arguments, right? We'll do this. And then once we've given them billions of dollars and allowed the sanctions to go away, then we'll talk about terrorism. Well, I, come on. 
for, for what possible reason would the Ayatollah sit down with the President of the United States when he's got billions of dollars in his pocket and isn't sitting under the thumb of American sanctions? It's, it's, it's nonsense. Uh, so I, I can't articulate why they want to head into that deal. I, uh, I remember, Barry, I, I remember I, when I was a member of Congress, Secretary Kerry would have said a hundred times something akin to, without this deal, we go to war. We need this deal, the JCPOA, or we go to war. And then I remember when I was a CA director and we were sitting in a room and the world was saying, if you move your embassy to Jerusalem, the American embassy to Jerusalem, we'll end up in war. Well, we got out of the deal, we moved our embassy and we didn't have a war. And as you and I chat here today, there's a war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so again, you talk about testing hypothesis. So when Secretary Kerry said that, this deal or war, he was testing a hypothesis. We got out of the deal, we tested the hypothesis. And it turns out that precisely the opposite of the hypothesis was true. American withdrawal from the JCPOA sent a message to the Middle East that Iranian terrorism was no longer going to be acceptable and that the Iranians would pay the cost for their terror. And when you lift that, when you now say, uh, what's the Southwest Airlines slogan? You're free to move about the cabin. If the Iranians understand that they are free to move about the cabin, you will see Hamas launching weapons into Israel. You should know that Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, is watching this as well. Massive numbers of precision-guided missiles sitting not too terribly far from the northern edge of Israel. He is watching. His Iranian sponsors are watching to see if the world is going to support Israel's right to defend itself and seeing if this administration, if the American administration is prepared to lead in supporting that right for the Israelis. So that story that you just told, right, that one of Iran's proxies, Hamas, is launching thousands of missiles at Israel, specifically at its civilians, with the intention to murder as many Israelis as possible, Jews and Arabs, Muslims alike. And Christians. And, and Christians. That story is the opposite of the story the press and, and really, I would say, mainstream pop culture is telling. The story they're telling is that Israel's a warmonger, that it's an apartheid state, that it's explicitly trying to massacre Gazans. Why has Israel so thoroughly lost the narrative war, the war over the story? Yeah, Barry, this has long been the case. Uh, so this isn't, this isn't new. Uh, if you remember back in 2006 when they were fighting the Lebanese, we've seen missiles fly for the time when President Obama was in charge, we'd seen these missiles fly before. Each time the United Nations and uh, the left, the internationalist left, grabs the narrative of Israel as aggressor when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the hopes that we had from the Abraham Accords is that there wouldn't be this reflexive support for the Palestinians' terrorists. We, we've seen that play out to some degree, but the accords themselves are relatively new. I, I'm still hopeful that the narrative will be stronger because you won't have uh, Gulf Arab state leaders reflexively supporting these terrorists that everyone knows are underwritten by the Iranians. Uh, you'll have to, you're, you're, you came from the media world, you'll have to articulate for me why uh, the vast majority of the media participants adopt the Palestinian, pro Palestinian narrative. For the life of me, I can't understand it. Well, let me ask you this. This is a politics question. How has Israel become a partisan issue? I'm watching as, you know, every progressive member of Congress gets up and basically grafts on parochial American racial politics onto a foreign conflict, <laughs> framing Hamas yeah. as the underdog. Um, how did that happen? And are the Republicans in any way to blame for making this a partisan issue? Or is it the, the fault of the left? You know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, Barry. When I came into Congress, there was already real tension. Uh, and historically, there had been a, a, a pretty solid bipartisan consensus about American support for the lone democracy in the Middle East, Israel. Uh, but it was also the case that you saw in the American political system you saw the majority of, of Jewish citizens in the United States voting for Democrats. Uh, and so there was always this odd tension. That I remember when I ran for Congress as a, I'm an evangelical Christian, I remember 
uh, in a small town hall meeting early on in my campaign in a very small town in Kansas, I was asked three questions about America's defense of Israel, something that uh, Christians understand the importance of. I think you're right. I think this fault line grew. It began, mm-hmm. from from my observation, it began as a political matter at the most senior levels during the initial efforts of the Obama administration to push through the JCPOA. And when President Obama made the statement that he was going to attack Syria, respond to Syria for having used chemical weapons, and then walked away from it, that sent a message too to those of us who know that Israel is an important ally and friend of the United States that that we weren't going to respond to the Assad regime using a chemical weapon sent chills down the spine, not only of Arab states, but of Israel as well. I've always supported a a two-state solution on the grounds that Israel cannot claim to be a democracy if it occupies another people. And also, when I look at the result of Israel's unilateral pullout from the Gaza Strip in 2005, and it's become a Hamas failed statelet at Israel's border— is there any reason to think that pulling out from the West Bank wouldn't result in exactly the same outcome? And w- what's Israel to do? Oh, no. Uh, if Israel doesn't provide a security solution to protect itself in the West Bank, it is as sure as night follows day that the Iranians would find a proxy terrorist organization and build it inside of the West Bank, thus having you know, Israel surra- surrounded uh, by Iranian terrorist proxy states. That is a uh, highly likely outcome. You'll remember, though, Barry, we, we, while we didn't resolve the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians for sure, we did lay out a roadmap, and that involved a solution that had two states. And so this was certainly the Trump administration's policy as well. It did so in a way that we thought was sufficiently uh, respectful of the rights of the Palestinian people living in the West Bank. We wanted to provide them not only uh, with a level of ability to self-govern, but also the economic resources so they could lift themselves out of some very, very difficult living situations inside of the West Bank. Uh, The Palestinians, you know, no, 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 refused to even have a conversation, uh, thus making life worse for the Palestinians of the West Bank. The The solution at the end of the day will certainly involve there being two states. Israel will also be required to provide a security solution that protects them and gives them the basis from which they can defend their country. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. As a student of history, you know that when Jew hatred, when anti-Semitism rises in a society, it is the number one signifier that that society is in decline. We are seeing horrific anti-Semitism being unleashed all over the world right now, triggered by the fighting going on between Israel and Hamas. You have, you know, a caravan riding through Jewish neighborhoods in North London saying, we'll rape your Jewish daughters. Uh, You have attacks going on on synagogues in Germany. Um, I could go on and on and on. Yeah. How concerned are you about that trend? I'm very concerned about it, Barry. It it certainly predates this current conflict, kinetic conflict that's going on. Uh, We've spent a lot of time working to push back against anti-Semitic behavior and against governments that tolerated it. We tried our best to impose costs on those governments if they didn't stamp this out as best they could. We certainly are not immune to that here in the United States. There were attacks on synagogues inside the United States during uh, the Trump administration. Uh, I, I worry about this deeply. Religious freedom more broadly and anti-Semitism in particular are deeply dangerous. They're deeply dangerous, especially in places that are democratic because they, they show an ignorance. They demonstrate an absence of tolerance that creates real risk. Your, your point about history is well taken. I think the world needs to note it and needs to respond to it. When I see what's happening today and I think I saw riots in Madrid or conflicts in Madrid, you, you highlighted a couple others, certainly in London, uh, those, those governments need to respond to them in a way that is both uh, provides the physical security that is needed, but also the moral leadership 
to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Speaking about the theme of whether or not America's in decline, I remember so clearly this lecture that I attended uh, in 2015 that Charles Krauthammer gave called Decline is a Choice. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately because, you know, Krauthammer was arguing that decline isn't in- inevitable. But lately, and maybe I'm just more pessimistic than you, it feels that way. It feels like the question of America's decline has become less of a question and more of a, a fact. You look at many of the hallmarks of decline, slowing growth, crushing debt, rising inequality, diminishing influence abroad, and, and maybe perhaps most importantly, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of self-confidence in our purpose in the world. So I guess I would just want to ask you, do you see American decline? And if not... Make the case for me that we aren't. I'm with Charles. It's a choice. All the things that you ticked off, I I would actually disagree with a couple of them, including American leadership abroad. Uh, But suffice it to say, you you listed a parade of horribles. uh, For purposes of the the discussion, I'm I'm, I'm happy to accept them. Uh, We get to make decisions every day about how we're going to raise our families and Uh, whether we're going to allow people of faith to attend their churches and whether we're going to go protect and preserve our educational institutions. And good leaders, good leaders at every level will rise up. I'm convinced of this. They will see see this risk. They They will see the risk of decline, not just American decline, but decline in their communities. And they will, again, say, no, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to support our police and law enforcement. We're going to underwrite our educational system. We're going to give parents real choices about where they want to send their children to be educated, and they're not going to tolerate substandard education. Real leaders in America always have risen to challenges when we have been confronted. There is no reason to think that those leaders aren't out there in America today. They will come, perhaps, from places we don't expect, but I am am long on America. And I'll give you one data point. Most of the world is long on America as well. They love to take pot shots. They love to throw rocks. That's all great. But when people get to vote with their feet, feet, where is it that they want to come? The immigration queue at the embassy in Bangladesh to travel and live in China is exactly zero. Mm-hmm. No, no one wants to go live inside of China. That's not the hallmark of a power that is rising. It's not the hallmark of a great nation. People want to come live in the United States. They, they want to do that because they believe in this idea, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't price that in, to use a market term. They wouldn't price that rise of America, the sustainability of American excellence and greatness and being the city on the hill, if they couldn't see it and their people didn't know it. So I, I continue to firmly believe that we will, to use Mr. Krauthammer's phrase, we will choose not to be a nation in decline and that people all across America are going to find leaders that they will support to ensure that that doesn't happen. Last two questions. Are you going to run for president? Barry, I'm going to stay in the fight. 2024 is an awful long way off. Uh, uh, yeah, come no, on. Nice, nice, we nice know try. you're love, running. Love the question. Love the question. <laughs> and I hope you love the answer. I'm going to, I'm going to keep working at this. It's just, uh, there, there's no way that anybody can reasonably say whether they know they're going to enter that race in a couple years. Uh, only time will tell and only the Lord knows the answer to that one. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. Okay, I know you need to go. Um, I imagine that you got a lot of grief from people in your life about your choice to serve in the Trump administration. Sure. And how did that shake out? Where are they now? And and do you have any regrets about that choice? Oh, my goodness. None at all. In fact, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I think I've read two books or pieces of two books and pieces of a half a dozen articles that talked about how I was on razor's edge thinking about resigning or that I'd made a suicide pact to leave. Barry, it never entered my mind. Not once. I was serving America. I had the enormous privilege to be America's Secretary of State and do my best to deliver uh, American security and good outcomes for people that I love and my own family. Who, who, who gets that chance? I was blessed. And I was working in administration where I had lots of space to go do what I believed was right alongside committed patriots. No, I, I, uh, I am proud of the work that we did for those four years. I never once thought that it was the right thing for me to do to leave that organization, to, to leave behind the teams that I had built who were working on such important things was something I was deeply committed to. Um, uh, we, we didn't get it right every day. I, shoot, I haven't got it right in the last 100 days either or the 
50 years before I was in the administration, <laughs> but we were, we were working on important problem sets trying to deliver really good security outcomes for the American people. I, I'm proud of that service. And if he asked, if he ran in 2024 and asked you to serve again, would you do it? Oh, again, way too far off. Who knows? Okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Secretary. You, I'm so grateful for your time. Bless you. Keep, keep praying for Israel and for the Jewish people around the world. Thank you so much. Yeah, so long.